Dear Heavenly Father, we look forward to that day when we will simply be face to face with you, praising your name forevermore. Lord, we can only imagine what that's like right now as we offer ourselves to you in worship. Lord, I pray that you would um, let the time we have had together focusing our minds and focusing our hearts on you um, uh, to open our minds and hearts and allow the Holy Spirit now to, to reach into us and impact us in a way that we need to be impacted. Lord, we know your Holy Spirit is at work. We know that he is active. Lord, I pray for soft hearts. I pray that we would simply abandon ourselves to you and what you would have for us. Lord, we love you. May our praises always rise to you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. That, uh, that last song kind of got me a little bit. How about you? Yeah? I, uh, I imagine someday uh, we'll be able to sing that song with just uh, steady voices, right? But we'll actually see him. And some of us are closer than others. But it should always be a celebration. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Um, I'm thankful to be here. I know a few of you have been asking just very quickly. Uh, we, we have a little email that goes out if you want updates on what's been going on. But I'm thankful that I'm able to be here uh, three weeks after the surgery, so they, uh, they pulled an ugly little monster out of my back, and uh, I was free. I could still walk, so yeah, I'm thankful for that. All the rest of the information you can find other places, because this morning I really want you to uh, target your own heart soil. We're wrapping up a series. Forgive my nose. That last song really did do me in. Uh, I'm just so thankful to be with you. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, as you are turning there, uh, in the news, in recent news, uh, there's a guy by the name of Bob Harper. Anybody know that name? If you saw The Biggest Loser at any point in time, he was one of the trainers on The Biggest Loser. 17 seasons, they said, that he was training people and yelling at them to get fit so that they'll live long lives, right? At 51 years old, as a fitness guru, as one of the leaders, the champions of fitness and longevity, he has a heart attack in a gym. And the only reason that they said he was saved was that there were EMTs and uh, workers that were around him. He's thankful to be alive. He says it's caused him much time to reflect. But I see that story, and I'm thankful that Bob is still alive. But I see that story as really a picture, a metaphor for what can happen in the church on a daily basis. How many times have we walked out of this place professing our cleanness, professing our right values, professing that we are living the way that God would intend for people to live, and all the while our uh, diseased heart has been hidden by our activities? I actually had something for you to write down 
before we get there, I rarely have you write anything down in the introduction, but there's two things I want you to take with you as we go through this this morning. First, a diseased heart is the biggest shock to those who display their health. A diseased heart is the biggest shock to those who display their health. It's not just that uh, he was healthy. It's that they were putting that on display. It's not just that you say that you're clean. It's that you're putting it on display. And when the Lord reveals what's going on on the inside, it is the biggest shock to you when you've projected to the world what your internal state is. It's a big shock. A second thing is on the way in, you received a mite. All right, every single, buddy, every single person should have received a mite on the way in. I'm not going to ask how many of you gave it back or gave it to a neighbor or did these things. I want you to think about this. The moment that you received this, you maybe were curious. It might have had a moment of uh, reflection. But the moment that you received this, you decided what you thought this message was about. Okay? You've maybe heard the story of the widow's mite, or you're concerned about what it could be about. I want you to hold judgment. As soon as you received that mite, you decided whether or not you would even receive this message. second thing I would have you understand is you pre preconditioned your heart. But this entire message this morning is about your heart. I want you, when you hold on to that widow's mite, and if you rejected it or handed it off, I want you to get one on your way out. Every time you look at this coin, for whether or not you can keep it in your pocket for a week uh, or years, I want you to reflect on the state of your heart, and I pray that we can make that case this morning. Okay? Luke chapter 21. <clears throat> We're actually going to start in verse 45 of chapter 20. Let's stand as we read this passage together. Luke chapter 20, verse 45, through the first verses of 21. And while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. <laughs> And the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses. That's a key phrase. And for the appearance sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. <laughs> and he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts in the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And while some were talking about the temple and that it was adorned with such beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Do you believe that's true? You may be seated. Fathers, we pay attention this morning to this passage. I pray that you would give us insight. I pray that you would cause our hearts to be soft. And I pray that you would cause us not just to be generous, but to be godly. Father, I pray that there wouldn't be any externals that would disguise a wounded heart. That we would not be self-deceived. Help us 
Father, this morning to walk away transformed with our hearts tilled by your spirit, changed and eager to see the people around us as valuable. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This box magically appeared in my hand in the prayer. <laughs> that was a message. I'll try to keep the sniffing to a uh, minimum. For the first time, it actually could be allergies, all right? Just, I mean, I really like you guys and all, but uh, something broke the dam loose. In your notes, it's hard not to be moved when we read the story of the widow's might. As the gospel writers take time to replay this event for us in slow motion, it is common to be filled with empathy and left with a question. What do I do with that? Jesus doesn't tell us. He leaves us with the strong implication that a true disciple will read and understand. This is a, a passage that demands reflection. One author observes, we enter the scene with Jesus and his disciples in the treasury, the place where religious people gathered from far and wide to make their donations to the temple. The treasury was on the inner part of the temple, and the coffers placed around the room were shaped like trumpets, each with a different purpose for contribution. Many of the rich threw in large amounts, but this story is not the story of many people. This is not the story of large amounts of money or of someone doing something flashy and noticeable. This story is about one of the least noticeable things in the entire New Testament. There are no angels winging around the throne of God, no demons being cast out of a flock of pigs or a man being lowered down from a roof to receive healing. There is this woman, this small, unnoticed, uncared-for woman who hardly counted as a person in her society. And there were two coins. Adding to the intensity is the fact that this passage is the hinge point in the gospel writer's observation of what was going on in the temple at its high point and the revelation of how it all would end. This matters. Amen? There are two things, and uh, I think this is very important for you to understand as we start this. First, this is not a condemnation of wealth. This needs to be first in your mind. He is not condemning wealth. We should be aware of our wealth. We should be awake to its power, but you should not be ashamed unless wealth guides your life instead of the Lord. Amen? You should not be ashamed. The U.S. right now in the current studies has 40% of all the money, all of the wealth in the world, 40%. Now you think, well, that, that used to be a larger number, and that would be true. But the next largest uh, group on that list is China with 10% and England with 5 We dwarf all other economies, all other nations in how much wealth we have gathered for ourselves. That's a huge responsibility. The highest 1% of all the wealthy in the world own 50.1% of the globe. 1% owning 50% of everything that you can tread your foot on. Is that amazing? 70% of all people have less than $10,000 of total wealth. That's cash, cars, property, 
candy, whatever you would call it, whatever you're smuggling, less than $10,000, 70%. Think of that, folks. 25% of the world is in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty being listed by making less than $1.25 per day. All right? A little over $30 a month. Can you believe that $40 a month is not extreme poverty? In those economies, it is harder to buy goods than it is here. All right? $30 a month. Now, that's down from 56% of the world only 40 years ago through the efforts, mostly, of those that are wealthy. It's been cut in half in the last 40 years. Now, imagine that in the 1800s, 80% of the world was in extreme poverty. All right? There is much good that has been done by very few over this period of time. We don't hear that. That's a blessing. In Africa, even today, 70% of all health care and assistance comes through church-run agencies. They run to the church before they run to the government because they can trust those who are doing the work on them. Is that amazing? 70%. We ought to amen the Lord for something like that. That is a great deal. If we submit to the Lord, we can do amazing things with what he has gifted to us, and we should. It's not a condemnation of wealth. We just need to be awake to it. Secondly, it is not a commendation of giving all. Giving every single thing that you own is unsustainable. Okay? So if you were to give away everything that you own, that means you wouldn't have a meal this afternoon to go home to. If you were to give away every single thing that you own, you would not have even a job to go to this next week. To give away all is what happens in this passage. I think it sets the heart. I think it shows us the urgency of what is going on in the mind of the widow. It's not a commendation of giving all. Should we be willing to say, Lord, whatever I have is yours? Absolutely. And we need to be mindful not to take that lightly. But I don't believe this passage is the passage where you find uh, that power. He is trying to point us to what's going on in the heart of a widow right under the noses of those who are wealthy. And they didn't notice. Their religion did not heighten them or make them aware of what they needed to act on. She was putting everything, her whole case, in God's hands right in front of them, and none of them took note. That's intense. Not a commendation of giving all. Our goal, even at the church here, is that you would not give a dollar until you've given your life. Amen? We, we don't want your money. The Lord can take care of anything that's happening here. He will do that. He will move through spirit-filled believers. You don't spend a thing. You give your life first. And only when the Spirit of God tells you you ought to be about something, should you do it. But if the Spirit of God is telling you you ought to be about something and you don't, that's between you and the Lord. And he's a lot tougher than us. Amen? Take it seriously. So with that said, Luke chapter 21. He looked and he saw the rich putting in their gifts into the treasury. I want you to understand what is going on just before this moment and just after this moment. I want us to pop ourselves, if you can, mentally into the moment, and then I want you to see what Jesus is doing, okay? 
So just before this moment, I want you to take note of what the Lord says before she gives her might. And I think he's highlighting a fact that impressive faith is not impressed with itself. Impressive faith is not impressed with itself. Therefore, verse 45, while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, remember all the people are listening because he just shot a giant... um, piece of artillery right over the bow of the scribes and Pharisees. He just fired a bullet right past them. All the people are focused in now, and he turns to his disciples within earshot of the scribes. This had to just really tick them off, okay? Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, who love respectful greetings. In fact, the way they would receive those greetings is like this. You'll still see that in some places today. It's like this. It's like they're fanning the good smoke toward their nose, okay? Yeah, keep it coming. Keep it coming. They love respectful greetings in the marketplace. They like the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor in banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for appearance sake, they offer long prayers. And then enter Exhibit A. A widow comes in front of them and proves it all true. Impressive faith is not impressed with itself. These men love first place. There's a word here that is intriguing to me. He says devoured. Do you know we have a famous passage that we look at quite often where devoured once again comes up. In 1 Peter, when it's talking about Satan, our enemy, it says that he goes about, roams about like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. Same words, okay? Seeking somebody to drink down. It has some uh, consistent uses. This word is only used a a few ways in all of the New Testament. It's used of a fire that will completely consume a piece of wood. It eats it all the way up and leaves just charred remains. That's an amazing metaphor, isn't it? It is used of a young man who takes all of his father's possessions and completely uses it up and is left with nothing. He's destitute and has no resources to lean on. It is used in 1 Peter of a lion that captures through fear, and then it's used of the scribes who would plunder by extortion. In other words, they would use religious passages to put people in fear that if they did not give up their money or their goods to that individual, that they would be on the outs with God. If you don't give me your money, you're not going to go to heaven. That's the implication. And they would devour with gladness all of those things. The very last, that those that were in poverty, the word used here for this widow is those in extreme poverty, the very last that they would have, they would gladly take for themselves. They were impressed with themselves. They were not afraid of God, and they didn't care for those that were poor. In fact, the description that you have here, they walk around, they love the respectful greetings, they like their long robes, they like places of honor. They are described as mobsters. How sad is that? When those that are at the head of a faith system are described as mobsters, God is done. Al Capone in the 1920s called Scarface by those that were afraid of him, but he was called a modern-day Robin Hood by those that were poor in the lower part of Chicago. 
In fact, all the way up through the 1920s, uh, he ran a soup kitchen while he was down there. And in its heyday, 5,000 people were fed at Thanksgiving uh, lunch. And he advertised that and told everybody how much that he cared. Now, what he didn't advertise was that most of the food that went into that soup kitchen, he had gone and extorted from the, the businesses around. Everyone around him was in poverty, but he put on display how he was taking care of those that were poor in order that he could continue his lecherous ways. He was a mobster. Before you say, I'm not Al Capone, all right, I want you to think about this. Scientists at the University of Cal Berkeley analyzed a person's rank in society measured by wealth, occupational prestige, and education. If you can get the greeting in the marketplace. And they found that those who were richer were more likely to cheat and lie and break the law than those who were poor. We found that it is much more prevalent for people in higher ranks of society to see greed and self-interest as a good pursuit. Well, I'm going to use it for positive means, said Paul Piff, the lead author of the study and a doctoral candidate at Berkeley. Greed is a robust determinant of unethical behavior, according to this study. What it comes down to, really, is that money creates more of a self-focus, which may account for larger feelings of entitlement. I'm saying put yourself there, but we'll just take a few moments for you to see if the shoe fits. Impressive faith is not impressed with itself. Second thing I want you to notice in this, notice what happens after the past. Are we doing okay, by the way, guys? You know, I just only come up here for light cotton candy messages, right? <laughs> Second thing that we, we want to see is notice what the Lord says after she gives her might. Okay? Verse 5, and while some were talking about the temple, and it was adorned with such beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things that you are looking at, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another. It will all be torn down. Impressive faith is focused on ministry, not monuments. Ministry, not monuments. I was doing a study for a different message a little while ago, and in that I found a couple of articles highlighting what people were giving to during the course of the last few years. And two years ago, in the United States, believers raised $5 billion. Can you believe that? $5 billion for buildings. During that period of time, 95% of churches spent 2% or less on homelessness and reaching the lost that had never heard of Jesus. Less than 2%. More money has been stolen from missions by false bookkeepers, by thieves, than is actually getting into the foreign field, into the unreached people groups. And about 1% is making it to the streets. May that not be us. Amen? Amen. I'm praying that over the next 10 years it will be said, for sure, of Salem Heights, that the emphasis would be on the community and on people and on those who Christ loves. That's what our prayer is. In the Middle Ages, there were many cathedrals that were built. And we have some pictures of some of these. Look at this picture. This cathedral is built. Uh, this is one, actually, that came to the United States, modeled after what was going on in, the, in Europe. 
They would take in a village hundreds of years to build season after season after season with all of their wealth, these mighty, majestic cathedrals, some of them built for such a surplus that the entire village could fit into them two or three times over. They would have opulence on the inside. They would have gold. They would have fine paintings. Meanwhile, the people are in poverty and broken and overwhelmed, thinking that if they don't give to that campaign, that they weren't faithful. If you go to Scotland today, you can see some of these buildings. They look like this. They are empty. The only reason that people will frequent those locations even to this day is because in those cemeteries, some of their family history is told. They'll go back there to mark where their ancestors lay, but that's not where their faith is. Buildings pass on. True? When the disciples saw Jesus' frustration with what was going on and the wealth in the temple, and when, and when they saw his heart, they actually began to point out and say, but, but Lord, look, at some of them have done great things. And we need to make sure that we at least have that in our mind. I, he doesn't condemn them for thinking good of people. But he looks around and he says of the votive gifts. By the way, the votive gifts were gifts of great money, great pledges, sometimes gold sheets and beautifications that would happen on the inside of the temple. The temple was so gorgeous, it's considered one of the wonders of this world today, even by the secular world. When they consider the temple that was Herod's temple, they say the magnificence was unparalleled. In fact, because of recent earthquakes, even during the time of Luke, The gorgeousness of the temple would probably have stood alone. Everything else that would have been a monument to man's ability had been crushed, and the temple was standing, plastered in gold, filled with gifts. People had said, before the Lord, I pledge, I'm going to give this thing. But what they were doing was setting up a great big monument. They were putting a brick in the wall with their name on it, saying, oh, this is going to be there forever. I will be known in Israel as this great giver. Meanwhile, The ones that God really cared about were walking by unnoticed. Christ said, this is all going to fall apart. Where is your faith and your effort then? What kind of legacy does it leave when all of that is in the ditch? Should you build things? Yeah, if it's going to facilitate ministry. But the thing that matters is souls. Amen? Souls. People matter. Not the stuff that people gather in. We can find a hollow to meet in. The souls are the ones that matter. Dead faith is more interested in the temporal rather than the eternal. Third point, man. Impressive faith is faithful no matter the circumstances. I want you to imagine for a moment now that you're standing in the shade of these men, so lofty in their own minds, and you're a little widow. In fact, you're shaky. Because of her circumstances and what the Lord tells us, in fact, the disciples, I believe, were impacted by this moment so much that in the book of Acts, they start an entire fund that is just for widows and taking care of widows. It was of first importance. By Acts chapter 6, they had grown so large and there was so much need, they actually assigned a group of people called deacons 
to help make sure that they were being taken care of. And by First Timothy, a third generation, right? The disciples, then Paul, uh, who was trained by the disciples, and then Timothy. He is actually told, you need to make sure that there's a certain type of individual on this list. They are widows indeed if they have no husband, they have no children, they have no family to take care of them. If they are the ones that have to go and make presentations in the temple and they're on their own, you take care of them. You be family to them. That's what it's always supposed to be as believers. Amen? We're supposed to be family to those that are broken. So here she is. She appears in the temple and there's no husband to leave the gift. There's no son. There is no family member to watch her all the way to the place where she gives gifts. In fact, the indication is this is the very last of anything that she has. No food in the cupboard, no home to go back to, nothing left. She is given up. And in the shade of these magnificent men, she wanders into that building. And if you imagine the temple in that day, and you're walking into the courts. On the outer part is this court of the Gentiles. You're coming past all of the other people who uh, wanted to come there and be near to God, but they could not be. And she steps all the way through those gates into the court of the women. And you saw these trumpets sticking out of the, the wall of the treasury, these trumpets that they would have horns. You see those right there? That actually would be covered in copper, and they would have 13 different designations. One would be for offerings. Uh, of this type and offerings of that type. Some of them would be grace gifts. Some of them would be given uh, for the poor. Some of them would be given for all of these different reasons. And the rich would come with their bags of gold and they would make sure that people heard it on the way and they would strut their way through this magnificent temple and they would slowly open their bags. In fact, some of them would pay to have multiple couriers bring in their wealth, their haul from all of the other widows in the land into the church and they would slowly and one of those trumpets begin to pour that out. It would ring. It would make noise. It would bring fame. Look at all that they did. And meanwhile, and it always frustrated me in the past, that Jesus is sitting by the treasury watching how people give, right? Is that what God really does? No, what he does is he's watching this widow. And she comes humbly up, and she has her two little lepta, 164th of a piece of currency. We have a penny in our day that equals that. And she walks up to that place and barely a tink. And she shuffles away. And I think in her mind at that moment, she says, Lord God, you're the only one who sees. And no one else does. Why is Jesus sitting by the treasury that day looking at what people give? Because God does see. He sees her. And she gives that last gift and she goes home to die. That's what I believe. She goes home to die saying, Lord, I'll just be glad to see you next. There is nothing for me here. And she honors the Lord in front of these treacherous men. We had a... Uh, little old man in Melrose Community Church. He was our pastor, Charlie Allison. We've talked about him before. This was a man that was faithful to come to our door in rainstorms, to get kicked out of the green household multiple times before my family came to Christ. You couldn't offend this man. He didn't have much. I didn't know how poor he was until he passed away. Cancer had afflicted his family. His wives had passed on 
He would go door to door after looking over the Callahans, praying over every household because he believed that the Lord had said, until you're dead, this valley is yours. You go and make sure every home has heard of Jesus. And he would do that. When he heard that I was going to, to Corbin to go into ministry, he had called me up when I came down to visit my folks. He said, can I see you before you leave? He bought uh, a cheap little pizza we met down at uh, Round Table. We sat down, we had a bite to eat, and at the very end, he gave me $20. I wasn't aware that Charlie would set aside his money every single month and he would save and save and save until he had $20. And he gave it away to a college kid saying, hey, I want you to be blessed on your way out. It's left a mark on me when I think about generosity. But here was this man who gave his last dollar. Why are we generous? Because God says faithfulness matters. It is a sign of your heart. Charlie would ultimately, just within that month, end up passing away. He was going to share his faith, uh, and, and he died in his car on his way to share the gospel. With his boots on, faithful, to tell them about Jesus, to meeting Jesus in one moment. How glorious could that be? Here's this man. If you go and you talk to that generation, there's a whole group of us out of a little church of 100 there's five or six different people that are still in ministry today that all trace their passion for the cross back to Charlie Allison, a guy who couldn't preach two sentences together in any glorious format, all right? But he was so close to the Lord, you couldn't let him go. And he would send you off. Faithfulness matters. She gave her very best. She goes home to die. She says in her heart, man, I hope he sees. And God was the one that was watching. But I want you to notice one last thing. The key in all of this, Jesus is not sitting there by himself. He's sitting there with his disciples. And the final thought in my mind is this. Those that are closest to the Savior saw the problem and the need most clearly. Jesus points out to his followers where the need is. And I think that's not just the case in the day of the disciples. I think it's the case in every single generation. If you are close to the Lord, there is something that's been put on your heart where he says, do you see it? Do you see that? Do you see that person? Do you see their heart? Do you see the need? And he lays that on your heart, and he doesn't do it softly. He doesn't let you walk away and use your own imagination to find out something good to do. The Spirit of God lays on the heart of the child of God exactly what God wants you to be about. Amen? We should be passionate about those things, and we shouldn't say, oh, man, I don't want to get too crazy. Right? Let's be crazy. The world's not going to think any different of us. Why not just live for him? Amen? Let's live for him in a vocal and a visible way, and we'll be generous in those things that God wants us to be generous about. The Scripture is consistent about these. I just printed off a few of the verses that always stick in my mind. James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Notice that's a physical presence. You show up. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why? If you're stained by the world, you won't show up for those who are in need. Isaiah 117, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. If you don't pursue he, him and his ways, 
then your legacy will be ended. The one that always causes me to pause is Ezekiel 1649, especially when I see our generation in the United States. He says to Israel here, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Let that soak. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, that is, anyone who is like her, had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. I don't know if that describes the United States. Are we proud? Look at our leaders. Do we have an excess of food? Do we live in prosperous ease? Do we aid the poor and the needy? In a recent article on homelessness in the Statesman Journal, they actually had a few people mail in questions when they saw the need for homelessness in Marion and Polk County to be addressed. And they said, are there any agencies that aren't religious that I can send people to? And the answer, in essence, was no. In fact, then at the end, one of the councils got together and with great magnanimity, they announced that they were going to do a study in a liberal state, in a liberal city, in our nation. I want you to hear this right. If you're a politician, God bless you for being in that place. I pray that you can keep your soul untainted and that you will be an agent for good. Amen? Amen. I believe that that is possible, but you have to work at it. But they were going to set aside $13,000 for this study to invest in that area. I'm going to tell you right now that there are people who are doing an amazing work. And right here in this room, we have people who have been touched by homelessness, who are living for Christ. Amen? And living in victory. Now, I'm not going to make you stand, but I'm going to say this, that it's not just whether or not you've been on the street that matters, but the people who love you also are concerned about your state on the street. And I am praying that in this church, we will see not only those who are broken, but we will give great encouragement to those who are helping them on the way out. Amen? That we won't live for our ease or for our refinement or for our building, but we will live to see others bettered and the focus being Christ. That's my prayer. Two things I would have for you this morning. First, if you are here and you have been touched by homelessness, you have been touched by poverty, or you have been broken, even from some of your own decisions, I want you to know that we see you. Amen? Salem Hyder, I pray that your eyes are open to those that are in need even this morning. And we don't do that to make ourselves feel better. We do that because we think that that is the demand of Christ. He sees you. So if we love him, we see you too. Amen? I want this to be a place where you feel loved and where you feel engaged. That is our passion. We want you to say in your hearts, I'm home. But secondly, if you're here, and you do have ease. I want you to take out that widow's mite. I threw mine in the little coin collection here. And I want you to keep this with you for a period of time. All right? This mite. And I want you to ask yourself, do I see what God sees? What have I done to take care of what God is concerned with? I want to make a challenge to you, Salem Hyder, if you're a regular attender. We say don't give your 
money until you've given your life. I want to ask you to do two things this morning. They're not going to impact our coffers at all, but they will change what's going on in Salem. We have an opportunity right out these doors, and I want you to consider what you're going to do, even as you look at this widow's mite. To be able to walk alongside kids whose parents are in prisons with Agape, that, that ministry that's out there with Camp Agape, uh, they're going to be doing not only fundraisers, but having sign-ups to be at those tables and to participate this summer. I want you to consider whether or not you would physically show up to take care of some of those that are considered the least of these. The camp is only inhibited by how many people will come to serve, all right? Let them see Salem Heights first in line, okay? Amen? Pray about what you would do. The second, there's a table out there for the UGM, and we have an opportunity this morning to invest in them, and I'm going to ask you to consider a monthly gift, okay? This doesn't impact me. It doesn't come here. But they're actually not just building a building. It's going to go towards their infrastructure, the ability to every single month impact people that we know and love that are here inside this building so that they can get off of the street and into health. And the programs that they are running, I'm telling you right now, are not just the best in the city, the best in the state. These are ones that you can look at and they should be broadcast around our nation. These people care about those that are broken and they have a program that will help them. Amen. 25 bucks a month. I, I'm praying that at least 100 Salem Hiders today on their way out will sign up and say, I'll give monthly to the UGM to help them as they go into this new building. They have a ton of great things that are about to happen. We'll make sure that we try to, our very best to inform you of where you can go to see what the building campaign and the things that they're uh, investing in so that we can change what's happening in downtown Salem, but also so we can put Christ on display through the activity of the church. I want you to consider whether you'd sign up 25 or 50 bucks a month to be able to help those that most generations miss. Amen? We should be the first in line. Let's pray. Father God, we ask now that you would see us, see our heart and enable us, not just to be generous with our money, some of us sneeze and spend $25 a month. Father, forgive us for not having that first and our best go to you and to those causes that are nearest to your heart. Help us this morning to rectify that. Help us to be those that invest in eternity, but most of all, that it is truly an offering where we look to you and say, Lord God, here is my best, that we do it to honor your name and not our own, that we do it anonymously, for your grace, for your glory, for your kingdom. Father, I pray that those that are broken would not be unseen, but also that they would not be left where they are. Father, help us to be first in line to meet those that are nearest to your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.